smiling faces, and uh, opportunity to celebrate what's coming, right? What we get to celebrate Christmas. It's all about Jesus. So, Jesus. So we just got through celebrating Thanksgiving, and we have we we do have a lot to be thankful for, right? And the Thanksgiving community dinner, we talked about complaining and a thankful heart. Complaining, I don't know about you guys, it's super easy to do, right? It breeds a very poisonous heart, but when we have a heart of thank, a thankful heart, that attitude of thankfulness is good, and it opens us up to be able to see the good gifts that God has given us. These next four weeks, up until Christmas, we get to look towards and celebrate God's goodest, if I may, right? His best gift of all. And that's Jesus, the Son of God, Emmanuel. So we're celebrating Advent, which means coming. There are three meanings of coming uh, that Christians dis- describe when we talk about Advent. The first is this, and most probably most thought of for all of us, it's what happened about 2,000 years ago when Jesus came into the world as a baby to live as a man and to die for us. The second can happen now as Jesus wants to come into our lives today. And the third will happen in the future when Jesus comes back to the world as king and judge, not as a baby. So throughout human history, we see depravity. Pretty much everyone can agree that humanity has great flaws and is in great need of improvement. Getting rid of hatred, anger, fighting, jealousy, hurt. Making more room for healing, love, good, and right relationships. And if you look at the Western culture especially, you see this. We are constantly looking towards counsel that will give us direction, hopefully to fix the things, these things through books, science, blogs, maybe even through our jobs or looking back at history. We're hoping government will fix things for us, maybe certain friendships. And in all this, you hear two sides. You hear either things are getting better or things are getting worse. So, The question is, who is right? We have programs galore. We save the trees. Recycle, right? Make new laws in the name of safety and freedom. Efforts aiming to rid the world of human trafficking. We have psychology identifying and labeling to create opportunity to help people and make people happier. These things aren't bad, but are they best? Is there something that is like no other thing that can do more than put a band-aid on all that we're trying to fix as a human race? Is there counsel somewhere that can see the full picture from the beginning to end and give us knowledge and understanding and then walk with us and beside us that can take the knowledge and understanding and turn it into wisdom? And, and, care for us along the way in such a way that brings hope in a system of flaws. I believe wholeheartedly that there is no other, there is only one that is like no other. 
and that is the Son of God, Emmanuel. The incarnate, the invisible God in flesh that was born of a virgin, born in a manger, not created, but existed before time. He stepped into time, grew up, walked amongst humanity, experienced humanity, and what humanity experiences completely perfect without a hint of compromise, full of divine wisdom, shares and gives that wisdom, goes to the cross to give his righteous, abundantly fulfilling life with God to those that will repent and believe and take sin, and and he takes sin in all of its horrendous, unsatisfying effects upon himself, dying in my place, then raising himself from the dead, conquering death, the permanent separation from God, and not leaving it there, but going to be where God the Father is to prepare a place for you, for me, for those that receive his grace and his forgiveness for all of eternity. I believe there is no other like him. Nothing and no one else has a perfect, permanent fix. The rest only act as band-aids, trying band-aids that, that eventually fall off, create more disease for humanity, and the result is death for a humanly incurable disease. However, from before time, God planned a way to redeem depraved humanity and has given us perfect, awe-filled, incomprehensibly authoritative, all-consuming, wonderful counsel that has revealed the problem, showed us what fixes the problem, and makes things right again, and then completely restores what humanity has been trying to fix from the beginning of time, therefore God making it good, very good again. Throughout humanity, or th- excuse me, throughout the Old Testament, we see glimpses of Jesus. If we look in Genesis 1:26, it says, "Let us make man in our own image, the Godhead, the Trinity." Colossians 1:16 talks about how Jesus was there at creation; that He actually was the one who created. He was not created, but He did create. Throughout the Old Testament, we see this building of a storyline that was going. A storyline for the Jews, but really for all of mankind, for all of us, of this Messiah, this Redeemer that was going to come down. He was going to go to us to save lost, to save the lost man. In the context of what we're going to be looking at this morning, we have this man named Isaiah, who was set apart as a prophet of God to see and speak the things of God to the Israelite nation and to us. Isaiah 1, 1 and 2 says this. It says, These visions concerning Judah and Jerusalem came to Isaiah, son of Amoz, during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, all kings of Judah. Hear, O heavens, listen, O earth, this is what the Lord says. That grabs our attention. This is what the Lord says. There's something for us in this. And then if you move forward... From chapter 1 into chapter 6, we see a bit of Isaiah's testimony, this vision that he had in the presence of God. And we see Isaiah being set apart. Listen to this in Isaiah 6. It says, Then I, Isaiah, said, My destruction is sealed, for I am a sinful man and a member of a sinful race. 
Yet I have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Do we realize that before Christ, that we are sealed for destruction? Do we realize that we're sinful and we're part of a sinful humanity? 1 Kings 8 says this. It says, when they sin against you, speaking of God, for there is no one who does not sin. And Paul says it like this. He says, in the New Testament, he says, all have sinned. Not some, not most, not 99% of us, but all of us have sinned. All of us have fallen short of God's glory. Isaiah got to see the king. What a lucky guy, right? He got to see God. But we must also not read the sixth chapter of Isaiah mindlessly. The imagery and the, and the phrasing about what he experienced was completely beyond this world. It was powerful. It was breathtaking. And really, it was very soul-shaking. A treasonous, sinful man in the presence of a holy God, a perfect, good king that must enact justice. Isaiah before, before God. And during this, I, this encounter between Isaiah and God Almighty, we hear a very famous question from the Lord. And it's this in chapter 6. Whom should I send as a messenger for my people? And Isaiah's response, very simple, and yet very right, was this. Here am I. Send me. Christian, I got this question. Jesus has called you to love the people around you in and for Christ, giving them the message of hope. Is your response the same? Is it, here am I, send me? Granted, that is not always comfortable and easy, but it is the best place for us to be. Sometimes it takes challenge. Sometimes challenge gets put in front of us. Sometimes it takes effort and sacrifice, but it's good. Isaiah, a treasonous, sinful man in the presence of this holy, perfect God. He said, here am I, send me. Isaiah was called by God to give a message of truth, a message of hope. He was called by God to speak to their sin, but in the same, to give them this message of hope. But the question has to be, what is that, what is that hope, right? What is the hope? And so if you look, and if you go further on in chapter 6, if you look at the very last verse, it says this, says, even if a tenth, a remnant, survive, it will be invaded again and burned. Israel will remain a stump, like a tree that is cut down, but the stump will be a holy seed that will grow again. Isaiah didn't have a lot of real uplifting messages sometimes to bring to Israel. It was a challenge. It was tough when God sent him. But he was called to give this message of truth. It was a message that would speak of their sin, but it also very much spoke to the hope. So we see in Isaiah 6 that Israel is invaded and it's burned. Almost a complete destruction because of their unbelief. The unbelief of God's ways as right and good and the only ones to follow. That's what their unbelief 
was in. But the stump that is speaking about here in, in chapter 6 is the stump is the remaining faithful that God uses to accomplish his story of redemption. The holy seed, this branch that is spoken of here, will come to fruition in the only eternal reigning redemptive king, and that's Jesus. So there's hope. This message, he comes and he brings, hey, Israel, you're going to be destroyed. It's not good. You had unbelief. You're not following God, his words, his ways, the things that are right and good. But I want you to know God is faithful. He keeps his word. There's hope in this. He is sending one to us that will reign forever and redeem. Isaiah was a man called by God to bring and build up hope to a people in the midst of a very dark time. He was to bring hope that, was, that God was going to make good on his promises. That the Messiah, the Savior, would still come as God promised in the midst of very dark time when people when, when all kinds of people were trying to come in and destroy Israel. May we not forget this very simple truth though that God is he will fulfill his promises. That is who he is, that is what he does. And we live in a time that it seems dark, hopeless. We have experiences in our own lives maybe that seem dark and hopeless. We have times in our lives that we struggle to know what to do, maybe what to expect, what to look for as an outcome even, and what what that outcome may be. We need good, prudent, honest counsel that gives direction and hope that is sure. This Advent season, we're going to be focusing on Isaiah 9-6, one of probably the most famous prophecies in the Old Testament about Jesus this coming Messiah. So, if we would, if you would stand with me as we read God's word this morning, we're going to turn to Isaiah 9, 6. There we go. It says this, For a child is born to us, a son is given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. These will be his royal titles. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. May God bless us, this reading, and and what we're going to be studying over these next four weeks. Go ahead and be seated. So as I said, each week leading up to Christmas, we will be looking at each of these titles that speaks to the character of Jesus, that he is truly He's truly, he's like no other. And this week we're going to start this off. We're going to look at him, his title, who he is as the wonderful counselor. So what does this mean that this child will be a wonderful counselor? So we're going to take these two words and we're going to break them down to give us maybe a little bit greater understanding. And my hope in this is, is not to give you all of this, but to let this kind of unfold over the next few weeks as we dig into this, into these royal titles, this passage. Wonderful. When we hear the word wonderful, and often when we think of wonderful, we think of an emotional response. It, kind of, it grabs our attention. And in some ways, this is true of this title, but it goes so much deeper in the mind of the one that hears Isaiah's message when he uses this word. It meant incomprehensible. In other words, it's so full of wonder, we are in awe 
and we can't even wrap our minds around it. Full of understanding is completely beyond us. Jesus demonstrated this through his conception in the womb of a virgin. We see that in Matthew. His power to heal. We see that all throughout his ministry. We see it in his vast knowledge and his understanding when he, at the age of 12, was in a temple speaking with the extremely learned teachers of the law and the priests and discussing very deep things. We see this in his perfect, absolutely sinless life. We see it in his death and his resurrection. This wonderful carried with it great wisdom and ability to enact that wisdom. It makes me think of John chapter 8 when the woman was caught in adultery and the teachers of the law and the Pharisees came to Jesus and they said, this woman was caught in the very act of adultery. The law of Moses says to stone her. So what do you say, Jesus? They were trying to trap him. They were trying to trap him into saying something that they could use against him. They didn't like him. He was encroaching upon their fame and glory, and they did not like it. Without a word, Jesus bends down. He starts drawing in the sand. They demanded an answer, so Jesus stands up and he says this. (laughs) All right, stoner. I mean... But let those who have never sinned throw stones first. wonder what it would have been like to be there at that moment. Only one one by one they left. Jesus used great wisdom. And he knew their hearts of what they were trying to do and what they were trying to trap him in. What they were doing to this woman. In great wisdom and ability, he revealed the truth that any sin condemns us before a holy God. We all have sin. God's law is the supreme law. And that he has the right to forgive sins. Jesus is able to perfectly get angry and still be loving and unselfish and judge in a way that doesn't condemn all while not being vindictive and hateful. In some ways, I can do this. Until you do something to me that really matters. I mean, really matters to me. And then the gloves come off. (laughs) Jesus is able to turn water into wine or to heal, to do miracles. I can't. Jesus is able to speak things into existence. I can't. (laughs) Typically when I speak, it brings chaos and destruction. Jesus is able to, to take a relationship that is unable to be repaired and fix it. I can't. Jesus is able to change a man's heart. I can, I can help in the process, but I can't change a man's heart. Jesus knows what's in the heart. I can only guess. Jesus has authority always. I sometimes have some authority, and, and that's because I want to believe that. <laughs> Jesus raised himself from the dead. I can't. Jesus forgives sins in a way no eternal judgment Excuse me, Jesus forgives sins in a way that no eternal judgment can be played. I I can't forgive sins. Jesus can accomplish his plan with knowledge of all that will get in the way. And he does it with patience. I have to guess, and then when it doesn't go according to my expectations, watch out. Jesus has victory over sin. 
I can't have victory without him standing in my place to take my punishment for my sin and then him giving me his righteousness, his perfect life of eternal right relationship with God so I can spend eternity with God. That causes wonderful, incomprehensible, jaw-dropping awe. He is the perfect God come in flesh. He is the Savior of the world. The counselor, again, to gain understanding of what Isaiah is saying, we got to look into the culture of what they would have heard through Isaiah's words. They would have understood when he talked about being a counselor that this is being portrayed as a wise king, one that gives direction to his people. But Jesus isn't like man, though. He is beyond us. He's wonderful. He is outside of time. He looks into time. He has power over all things. He's creator and sustainer of all. He knows all things. He, has, he overcomes anything that comes against him. His counsel is always perfect. It's always fair. And it's complete because he sees beginning to end the motives involved. And he has the game plan for living a complete satisfying life that glorifies God and carries with it an immense reward. He knows the motives of man's heart. So he can give counsel that leads us to understanding of the why and the what to do. In Christ Jesus are hidden all treasures of wisdom and knowledge. We see that in Colossians. He is a counselor that knows what we are going through. He can have great empathy and care for us. We see that in Ephesians because it says that, well, I'm going to read it actually. This is Hebrews 4:15 4, 4, and 16, if you want to uh, look in your Bible with me here. It says, This high priest, speaking of Jesus, understands our weaknesses, for he faced all of the same temptations that we do, yet he did not sin. And then I love this next verse. It's just, it says, So let us come boldly, to the throne of our gracious God. There we will receive his mercy and he will find grace and we will find grace to help us when we need it. We have a, a God, a counselor that knows what we are going through. He can have great empathy and he can have great care for us. His counsel is always perfect and in the end it always turns out best and has with it no shame, no guilt, no slavery, but it does have freedom. It gives freedom and leads us to a right place. Proverbs 3, 6 says this. It says, his counsel is always, or excuse me, Proverbs 3, 6 says, seek his ways in all you do and he will direct your paths. His counsel is always tied to his perfect character and his perfect will. He is the king, but there are, there are two kingdoms and that is it. There is the kingdom of this world headed up by Satan that offers a wisdom based off of selfish desires that makes me believe I can rule my own destiny. I'm in charge of this. I don't need anybody. might need some help, but I'm going to use you to get what I want. And there is another kingdom, though, that is ruled by Jesus that has power over that previous kingdom, the first kingdom I talked about, the kingdom of this world. 
This kingdom of God is ruled by a caring, personable God that serves his kingdom through meeting the needs of his people, sharing with them all that he has. And in that kingdom are people that hopefully, anyway, will reflect his very character where there's sacrifice and there's deep care for one another. And when the time is right, according to God's timetable, King Jesus is going to come. He will overthrow and completely defeat this kingdom of Satan, doing away with any power that this kingdom has and permanently doing away with sin and its effects, all that it brings. King Jesus is a sovereign king. He and his kingdom, they're like no other. He knew a feeble, or he, he knew a feeble kingdom would try to overthrow his. But here's the great part. This is the part of this great, wonderful counselor. He set out a plan from the beginning of time to redeem those that would commit treason. Let me read to you Isaiah 9, 6 to 7. It says this. It says, For to us, for a child is born to us, a son is given. Or it can also be said, a son has been donated to us. And if you think about that, it's kind of an interesting, that's interesting. God donated his son to us. And the government will rest on his shoulders. These will be his royal, royal, royal titles. Wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. His ever-expanding peaceful government will never end. He will rule forever with fairness and justice from the throne of his ancestor David. The passionate commitment of the Lord Almighty will guarantee this. The only thing that stands between us and these kingdoms is belief. This prophecy of this child donated by God to us as the payment for sin comes on the coattails of King Ahaz, not trusting in the Lord's counsel to him. Ahaz feared the northern kingdom, along with Syria, is going to come in, was trying to overthrow Judah and Jerusalem, which was Ahaz's kingdom. This is where Isaiah was prophesying. This is where God had sent Isaiah to speak truth and to give counsel, God's counsel, to the king of Israel, the king of Judah. But Ahaz feared that this northern kingdom would come down and, uh, and destroy Judah. He feared it would happen. But through Isaiah, the Lord told Ahaz this. He said, do not fear it's not going to happen. But scripture says that Ahaz had unbelief. And I encourage you guys, if you want, read Isaiah 7, 8, and 9, reading, coming up to this point of speaking of this child that has been given to us to, to catch kind of more of the glimpse of what I'm talking about here. Ahaz did not trust in the wise counsel of God, and he took matters into his own hands. We do the same, don't we? And then we blame God blatantly or sometimes subversively. We, we think these things or we even say these things. If God really loved me, he wouldn't allow this to happen to me. Or we might try to fix the problem ourselves because God's perfect counsel is just not good enough, right? Or sometimes we think this. Well, he hasn't experienced this. I'm, I'm kind of alone in this. I'm having to go through this myself. He isn't really fixing the problem as I think, as I think it should be fixed. He, man, God, you're not working fast enough. 
or or we do this too. God isn't listening to my prayers, so I need to go ahead of him and I need to fix this. But unbelief always has consequences. God must deal with doubt. God must deal with the doubt that manifests in unbelief. Ahaz didn't listen to God's counsel, and he, so he goes along. He pays the Assyrians. He pays the Assyrians to go and to fight against the northern kingdom. So Assyria demolishes, comes in and demolishes the northern kingdom. But God warned them of this. If they didn't repent and turn toward it, he would... Let me back this up. I'm getting tongue-tied here. Ahaz didn't listen to God's counsel and paid the Assyrians to fight against the northern kingdom. Assyria demolishes the northern kingdom, comes in, just wipes them out. But God warned the northern kingdom of this, that if they didn't repent and turn towards God, that this would happen. They did not, and so they reaped the consequences of what they had sown. But so did Ahaz's kingdom. Judah. The Assyrians conquered Judah too. Eventually what they did was they came in, they went over and they conquered Judah or uh, the northern kingdom, Syria, and it wasn't good enough and so they turned their back, they went against their deal, the deal with Ahaz and went down and conquered Judah, the southern kingdom. Exactly what Ahaz was hoping wouldn't happen. But as we saw earlier, as we talked about earlier, the counsel of God was challenged but not overruled because there is a stump. The stump we read about in Isaiah 6 when Isaiah is seeing this vision standing before the king and in the very last verse we talked about this stump and and that this holy seed would come from the branch and would grow from it. The prophecy that a babe born of a virgin placed in a manger a child donated to us by God to save mankind from sin, it would still come to pass. None of this caught God by surprise. He was prepared for it. God's plans, his directions, and accomplishment of his wonderful counsel, it is like no other because he will fulfill his promises. He will do what he says. He keeps good on his word. And in this, if, if there is a consequence for belief which there is, there is a war, reward for belief. Romans ten nine to 10 says this, For if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is by believing in your heart that you are made right with God, and it is by confessing with your mouth that you are saved. After this, our reward is citizenship in a kingdom that is completely unshakable, in a kingdom that is everlasting. Access to all the wisdom and knowledge of God. Access to direction. The promise of the Spirit of God with us every day, giving us the counsel of Christ, reminding us of what we have learned in Christ, and that we are sealed as citizens in the kingdom of God that Christ himself reigns over forever. What a, what a wonderful counselor that can be trusted. He is like no other counselor. When we look at the pictures of that manger scene that focuses upon the baby Jesus, 
We can see that all wrapped we can see that all that is wrapped up in the babe is a king whose counsel is wise, is complete from beginning to end, and is good for us. Do you believe that Jesus is the awaited prophesied about Messiah? The Son of God, God Himself in the flesh? The innocent baby born to obey God the Father and die a sinless death for a sinful man. This is his counsel to us. Walk in belief, not in unbelief. Obey the things of God. Believe they are the best. They are the truest. That they are the best counsel that leads us. It's good counsel that leads us into the right place. If God is faithful to fulfill his plan from the beginning of time to the birth of Jesus and the death and the rising back to life of Jesus, then why do we act as if we don't have evidence? A confident assurance that we can believe that he who began this good work of redemption, that he's going to complete it. Because he will. We can live in faith. We can have faith that isn't mystical and just wishful. But we can have faith that is confidently hopeful that it will come to completion. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15 that Jesus rose from the dead and he will raise those in him from death to everlasting life. The kingdom of God is manifest in Jesus. Those that confess Jesus as Lord and Savior are in the kingdom of God under the reign of Jesus. This is wonderful counsel. He is the wonderful counselor. Believe in the one whose counsel is like no other. This season, we have this awesome privilege to remember the birth of Jesus. God come to us, Emmanuel, in the flesh, our wonderful counselor. And now what what we are going to do is we're going to remember his death. We're going to remember what he came to do for us. We get to come to his table this morning and celebrate not just his birth, but we get to celebrate that life. We get to celebrate his death. We get to remember what he did for us on the cross, that it didn't end at death, but it led to life, everlasting life in his kingdom. So if we could, if the, uh, if our, the men would come meet me at the table this morning.